This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Champagne is an alcoholic beverage with many preconceived notions. It's a sparkly, glamorous drink that celebrates life, love, and much more. Today, I'm interviewing Kyla Kirkpatrick, who has two businesses devoted entirely to champagne, the Champagne Dame and Emperor Champagne. And you'll have, you'll have a great idea how she feels about this subject, which I know many of us will enjoy. She lives a life full of passion, following her heart and creating an incredible personal story, which she will share with us today. She gave up her glamorous corporate career in 2005, moving to Champagne in France to pursue a fascination with the region's history. Today, she's living and breathing Champagne with her masterclasses, her blogs, her Champagne clubs and French travel trips. Kyla is all about sharing the particularities and amazing history of one of the world's most fascinating wines. Welcome, Kyla. Thank you. Thank you. That's a nice introduction. <laughs> so as a kid, obviously um, champagne is not something you can drink, but did you have any French influences in your life in terms of family or travel or just interest? Because it's obviously a very French-orientated drink. So I'm curious to know how much of a Francophile you really are. Well, actually, no, not at all. You know, I had a very um, humble upbringing on the outer sort of western skirts of Melbourne and I didn't I didn't have a French influence and you know we, we were a working class family so we didn't travel extravagantly you know we used to camp and we lived a, a great but a very simple life so I guess my life now is extraordinarily different in terms of the upbringing that I had but I was always a passionate child and I loved to read and I always had a vision for myself of being something greater than perhaps where I was living and how I grew up. So I had a vision for myself and I think probably the only connection that I might have had as a child to the life that I'm living now is this interest in reading books on history. And, you know, even for a period of time I used to read the Bible and I used to sneak off to church with my next-door neighbour and, you know, I had this sort of feeling, ooh, growing up in a very atheist family, but what, what if I'm religious? But what I figured out much later in my life is that you know, my, my love of religion was a connection to the past and a connection to history. And funnily enough, champagne does that for me. So, <laughs> how it's, in- it's, my, it's my religion. There's a bit of a bit of a leap, but I could see how. Well, that for works. me, it was a fascination about something grander, something bigger. It was the past, and and champagne has this very very strong link to to nobility and to kings and to queens. And you know, really, you know, in, they built this magnificent cathedral in the heart of the Champagne region, and in this cathedral. All of the kings of France were anointed into power through these majestic ceremonies, you know, so making the common man closer to God. And this elevated the status of champagne, but it also gives champagne this wonderfully rich history of being connected with some of the most famous and and, and powerful figures of all time. And And I love that about champagne. However, you did have a corporate career prior to your uh, branching mm. out into your own gig. 
How do you reflect on that experience? It was obviously very different to what you're doing now, but do you think it set you up in some way to either be doing everything the opposite or you learnt some amazing lessons through your corporate life? Definitely. And I think that anything we do in lives, it's just a stepping stone to get us somewhere else. So you will take some learning, some lessons, some experience, some feeling from what you did previously and apply it in a new genre. I really enjoyed my corporate career. Um, you know, as a, as a girl growing up, I was incredibly studious despite not going to, you know, I suppose the best school in Australia or in the world. But um, I, I thought at first that I might be a lawyer. I was a very animated child. I loved to do drama. I loved to read. I was very passionate. And, you know, after working with a barrister for a period of time, that actually turned me off pursuing a, a life as a lawyer. And I decided that I would pursue my second love, which was commerce, was business. You know, I absolutely love the art of business and I still do. And it's very central to what I do now. So I did one of the first double degrees at Melbourne University. I did a commerce degree majoring in in finance and I did an arts degree majoring in Mandarin Chinese. And I entered into the banking and finance sector and I enjoyed that. But what I didn't enjoy about that career was not being in control, um, bureaucracy, uh, I just didn't have any patience. And even as a young woman, you know, I saw myself as being an authority figure. And, you know, as a young woman, you need to bide your time for, for, for climbing up the ranks. And I, and I had an impetuous, I had an impatience that wasn't going to stand for, for a good period of time. Oh, that's interesting. So you're 13 years ago, you did ditch that corporate career and ha- had your new passion ignited. Was there a particular mm. catalyst for why that happened that really led you to sort of create that first foray into the trip overseas to Champagne and I guess that Champagne Dame persona. Yes, and and the catalyst is not what most women, (laughs) say women, and some men think. You know, it wasn't the Champagne and it wasn't the glamour of the industry at all. You know, for me it was about the story. It was about the history. You know, I read an article on Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte being the first emperor of France and very much the protector of Paris, but he had a kinship, he had a connection with the Champagne region and um, he, he became friends through through some circumstance with the young Jean-Rémy Moet. She was the grandson of Claude Moet who founded, you know, what is the biggest Champagne house of all time and they, they struck up this friendship and, and Napoleon almost superstitiously used to ride his cavalry on horseback through the Champagne region gathering a little Dutch courage before they went into war and this story simply spiked an interest, it peaked an interest and I decided at that point um, that I would read a book on Champagne. Um, Champagne has a very strong connection with war and I I devoured that book and I moved on to my next and pretty soon I I was searching for quite obscure pieces of literature on Champagne and and I'd read pretty much everything. So I... How fascinating. Yeah. So you really were, you were obviously intrigued by the story behind Champagne. And I have to admit, France is actually my favourite country in the world. And I definitely call myself a Francophile. In fact, my youngest son is called Remy because I just love its old world French connection. Do you have, because you've been so much, you know, involved in, in your own experiences with Champagne and the region and France and the history, how would you describe your attachment to all of that now that you know so much and it's kind of your livelihood? It's my um, second great love outside of my family. You know, I just, the minute that I step off, the second I step off that plane, I feel like a different person. You know, and when I first started and uh, you know, in 2005, and I bought that one-way ticket. So I ended up writing a letter to this journalist who'd written my favourite book on champagne. And, you know, it was a pen and paper letter because I only had his physical address. And about a month later, I got a letter back from this gentleman. And he said, listen, I'm not answering your questions in writing. Get on a plane, come to Paris, come out to Champagne, and I'll teach you everything I know. 
And that was very much a sliding doors moment in my life. And I decided that the minute that I would get to Paris, I would assume a new persona. I, I would be the Champagne Dame. You know, I, I dressed that way. I, I, I walked that way. You know, from the minute I got there, I assumed that new role of being someone who would embody Champagne. And every time I get off the plane to Paris, every single time, the minute I step foot on, on French soil, I feel that energy, that passion from the very first day that I started. So I do have a very strong connection with the region. I love it greatly. I'm incredibly niche. Um, you know, I know everything about Chanel. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that, that's, yes. that's just the thing, right? Like it's sort of like you are the expert, but that's what you do yeah. every day. So I, I guess, yeah, I don't, do you ever never. get sick of it? I, never, it never. And it's, <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, I did two really big events on the weekend and by the time I got to my client on Saturday evening after finishing at midnight, the night before in Sydney and then getting a 6am flight and all the rest, you know, I was exhausted. But the minute I stepped foot on stage, I have, it's almost possessed. You know, I would have made a great preacher. The minute that I stand on stage in front of 100 people and I start to talk about my great love, I am transformed. I'm energized. And I don't, I don't ever remember what I say in that two hours, but I just finish on a high. You know, I have this rush of adrenaline and I can talk about champagne endlessly. I mean, there's got to be a beginner's book of records for that somewhere, but I, I just, I feel invigorated by it. And there's so many beautiful angles to look at the champagne. Um, story from there's so many lenses that you can put onto it so I never tire of it and I literally write I talk a lot not just about the technicalities of champagne but about the story of champagne and and, and there's so many wonderful stories that I could never tire of it. So the history of champagne um, is probably very complicated and you have alluded to some of that um, in your earlier answers. How has it really evolved into what a lot of us perhaps in this part of the world associate with it today? Like it's definitely a drink I think of as a, a celebratory drink. Sometimes you can drink it on a Tuesday and no one will notice. But, you know, it, it's it's sort of something that it, it's a very distinct purpose I think of when I think of champagne. But is that something that's always been the case or has it changed over time? No, it has been the case. You know, ever since Dom Perignon, so Dom Pierre Perignon, who was the godfather of champagne, first crafted what we know to be champagne. So contrary to all the stories that we tell, the bubbles were not intentional. They were accidental. They were a gift from Mother Nature. And those bubbles were problematic because they were causing the bottles of champagne to explode. But Dom Perignon decided that you can't beat Mother Nature, so let's join her and let's craft this beautiful sparkling wine as we know it today. He was very much the godfather. But one of the first things he did was to give these beautiful bottles to King Louis XV, and then King Louis XV gave it to his wife, he gave it to his mistress, the women of high society Paris, and the French royal court started enjoying this very, very sweet, as it was back then, sparkling wine that just made you feel good. You know, it was the centre of all great parties. It was the centre of all great orgies. You know, this is um, a wine that they say leaves a, the only wine that leaves a woman more beautiful after drinking it. So it, it was very much the, the, the soiree wine of, you know, the, six, the 1600s and early 1700s. And, you know, that has continued champagne being a celebratory drink, but it, it's more than that, you know, and I think that people are finally realising that champagne is actually a very gastronomic wine. It's wonderful with food. You can drink it throughout the entirety of the meal and, you know, people are doing that more so around the world and, and that's causing champagne sales to rise. So people are not just drinking it on major special occasions, they are drinking it with the meal and, you know, it's, it's an affordable luxury. We have this competitiveness of price and the price is coming down and, you know, generally when people were only drinking French on a, on a major birthday with a zero, you're right, they are drinking it on a Tuesday night or a Friday night or a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. Like I still remember it's very much of its era in the 80s, um, my mother drinking and my grandmother drinking the champagne and orange, which always mm-hmm. looked a little bit hideous yes. to me, I have to say. But I don't know why. They all probably thought that was a more acceptable kind of, you know, morning mm-hmm. drink, if you like, um, if you're doing a, a champagne breakfast or something. So I think these things do go through trends and champagne's probably had its had its nuances as well over the many years. And I, I, I know that it's the champagne sales in Australia are going yes. through the roof. Why is that? What what's what's suddenly ignited in us this love of champagne, which might have always been there, but perhaps saved for the special occasion? Yes, well, you're right. Champagne sales are going uh, through the roof in Australia. We have just had the CIVC release the latest uh, statistics globally, but also specifically to the champagne market. And we smashed another record last year, 8.53 million bottles um, being being imported to Australia. So, you know, we've had this, on average, we've had growth of at least 11% over the last 10 years. So we're up and up and up and up and up. And in 2015, we had a 25% increase off the previous year. So I'm talking huge sales. Um, We are the fastest growing champagne market per capita outside of Europe. We're the sixth largest export market in the world. I can't see that slowing down. You know, there's there's definitely um, a boom of champagne in this country. It's phenomenal. Um, I I think it's partly to do with um, the competitiveness of price and its availability through major retailers. You know, um, certain retailers have this uh, lowest price guarantee, which I don't agree with because champagne is underpriced in this country, in my opinion. I know that's great for consumers, but it's not so good for the champagne noir. Um, it's a painstaking wine to create, more complicated than you could ever imagine with the most rigorous of conditions um, and the most challenging of conditions to, to grow a vine in. Um, but, you know, we, we also have champagne at the centre of major sporting events in this country. I mean, our racing carnival literally stops the nation and it stops the nation for a week not just one day and that continues in many other race carnivals around Australia you know we we center our um, entertaining on champagne over those days and that has a halo effect we associate these good times this enjoyment of champagne with these wonderful events and it flows through creates trial you know from men and women who've perhaps never had an association before and we want to replicate that feeling of celebration in our own homes so, you know, major sporting events have got a big thing to do with it. We've also got a couple of champagne houses in this country, including Maum and Pomery and, and uh, the group from Moet et Chandon and, and Clico that are, are just marketing champagne in such a wonderful way that, that, that people are just caught up on that beautiful energy. They want to try it. They want to be part of that festivity. So technically only the French bubbles can be called champagne. Mm. Does that mean that they're the best? Why or why not? Does it? I mean, they are the best. That's categoric. Um, and, and you might because there are sort of wine cases out there that have challenged that and said, well, actually, there's this one in Tasmania, for example, or you know, there's an, a, another version of champagne that's not technically from champagne, so we can't call it mm. that. But you know, they might rate it um, very highly in sort of in, you know a newspaper review and so forth. So mm. I guess I'm sort of just challenging that idea. It has to be the French champagne well firstly it's because champagne is a region first and foremost so champagne with a capital c is a region it's an appellation it's located 90 miles northeast of champagne so the sparkling wine that is grown to very very exacting standards very very tight standards in that area is champagne with a lowercase c now that area is a trademark and the wines that come from that area are trademarks so anything outside of that region cannot legally use the word champagne. So that's the first thing to note, and that happened in the 1970s. And has that always been the case? I'm curious to know because I think there's been a shift. I do remember, 
you know, there was some case about this number of years ago. So I'm assuming that, you know, maybe the, the, the champagne growers in Champagne kind of went, actually, we want to make sure this is preserved. Yeah, so in the 1970s, I don't know when the exact ruling was, but in the 1970s, Australia certainly um, were very open and agreed in full to making sure that we do not use the word champagne on any of our sparkling wines. Some countries have been a little bit more uh, uh, lax, I suppose, in adopting um, that trademark. But, you know, Australia was certainly, you know, very, very open to, to following the rules that France had set about not using the word champagne. So that's sort of in the 1970s, around that period in the 1970s. But champagne is the, it has a very unique set of geological conditions. It has what you would call the perfect, perfect terroir conditions of the vineyard for, for producing a very unique and very exceptional sparkling wine. And the word terroir um, has no direct English translation, but essentially it means all the conditions of the vineyard. So from climate to the rainfall, to the aspect of the vines, to the sun, to what's going on underneath the soil and its composition, and it also includes the human hand. And the human hand in Champagne, they live, breathe, and think about the quality of their wines every minute of every second of every day. You know, this is it, this is so incredibly um, precise that they're very passionate. They don't make still wine. They only make sparkling wine, and they do it with, with vigour and with passion. So you've got a unique set of geological conditions, which is absolutely perfect, and then you have a human hand, which is incredibly focused, and all of that um, has an overlay of authority in the Champagne Society who tell you when you can pick the grapes off the vine, how you can make champagne, the minimum time that that champagne needs to age in the cellar for gaining complexity. Nowhere else in the rule, in the world are those rules set out. You know, you can you can buy a Prosecco. So to buy a, a bunch of grapes in Prosecco is 50 euro cents. To buy a bunch of grapes in Champagne is 7 euro dollars, you know, and there's no rules as to how those bubbles enter the bottle. There's no rules as to how long the, the bubbles need to stay in the cellar to gain complexity. And that's the same in Australia. They can be pumped into the bottle for all we know. But in Champagne, there's very, very exacting standards. And when that's you talk totally about different sparkling Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about different sparkling wines around the world, my opinion is they're just different. Comparing a, a sparkling from Tasmania, which is great, it's the only cool climate region truly in our country, it's like comparing a Chardonnay and a Riesling. For me they're just different yes they both have bubbles yes they've been made the same way but they're in different parts of the world they have different climates they have different hands and they're just um genetically different they're just they're just not the same so what's your favorite style of champagne i don't expect you necessarily to name a brand because i'm sure you've got many that that you represent and you yeah. love and how is that best enjoyed like is there sort of a pairing that you love with that Mm. Oh, look, I, I must admit I, I, I love all champagne. Um, there's two champagnes that I think I'm particularly fond of at the moment. So when I'm heading down to, you know, Emperor, we have over 160 different champagnes and um, we have our own climate-controlled warehouse, which is below my office, which is awfully dangerous. <laughs> so, you know, I just duck down and say, what am I going to drink today? Um, but, you know, what I'm tending to move towards at the moment are two different styles. One is called a Blanc de Blanc, a white of whites, and that's 100% Chardonnay. Um, so very elegant, very fresh. And if you leave that Chardonnay in the cellar for a long period of time, you get this French butter and this saltiness and this creaminess and sometimes notes of caramel, um, you know, really um, soft acidity and very delicate. And that's absolutely wonderful um, with caviar or sushi or seafood. And then second, I, I'm really loving a light rosé. So sometimes um, rosés have a small addition of this red wine. It gives them this very soft, you've got the base of champagne, which is biscuity and toasty, but you have, you know, 
an overlay of wild strawberries and raspberries and, and, and wild red fruit flavours. And I love that with um, some Wagyu steak or, or a duck or, or some type of red meat. Totally. So champagne's very, very versatile, you know, and I think for us, my job as an educator and a presenter specialising in champagne is to go out there in the market and not only talk to people about the nuances and virtues of champagne but to help them get their training wheels off, you know, get them drinking outside of the big brands, the brands they know, and get them drinking up and down the champagne category. Try Blanc de Blanc, try Rosé, try Vintage, try Demisec, try something new. That's very much my role as an educator is to, is to get people confident within the category and get them exploring the diversity, which is wonderful. So you have a very niche business. We did touch on that. So how have you sort of turned that into something that you could actually make a living from? And obviously you've expanded over the years with, with the two different entities that you've created. So do you work just with individuals or is there, are there companies that get you in? What's your kind of offering in the one-to-many space? Um, yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, when I, so when I first, um, left Champagne, when I went over to explore Champagne in 2005, I was recruited with Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. So Moet Hennessy, um, are the biggest luxury goods conglomerate in the world and they own Berkeley Co, Moet de Chandon, Dom Perignon, Krug and Runa. Now that's the ultimate. So I already started at the top of the tree in terms of where your career could go and, you know, when I wanted to diversify and work across all champagne brands, you know, there wasn't a job that did that. I had to create a job for myself that gave me, number one, the income that I wanted and, number two, the satisfaction of, of working across all of those brands. So I created the brand Champagne Dame um, in 2008 uh, with some trepidation, you know, is this going to work? Am I going to be financially secure? And look, for the first couple of years, you know, money was tight. It, it was not um, a big earning business. And when you're first starting out in any business, I think that's natural. You know, I didn't charge a lot for my, I think my first masterclass was $99. Now, I haven't gone up enormously since then. I think it's about 149 on average for a class. But, you know, I had to create um, a business entity and I was, essentially at that point in time, doing masterclasses for the public and also for corporate. And I still do that. So within my business, Champagne Dame, I have a number of different streams. It's turned into a significant business um, now. We have multiple revenue streams. And if there's any champagne anywhere in this country, it's mo- most likely we have some connection to it. We uh, Within the Champagne Dame business, I do what I call a champagne masterclass or a champagne experience. It could be a dinner, it could be a lunch, it could be a breakfast. That could be a private person who's entertaining their friends like I did on Friday evening. It could be a public class, which I run, and you come along and you buy a ticket from my website and you participate in our class. Or it could be for a company or a corporation where I come in and entertain their clients or their staff. And... Next to that, you know, because the masterclass is so beautiful. And when I first started, I thought people would come along, do a masterclass, say goodbye, and then I'd just press repeat. But, you know, when I did my first masterclass and then I listed my second, 80% of the room came back again. And I was thinking, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, that's new material. That was a different champagne. <laughs> for 12 years. I mean, I have had, I know my clients intimately. I know, my, I know them very, very well. I know their families. I know their children's names. I mean, I've got 40,000 plus in my database now, so it's a big business. But, you know, I know many of them closely. There are clients who wouldn't dare miss a class. So every time I do a masterclass, I could bring in something new. I have to keep doing my homework. So it's, it's an incredibly challenging role, but yes. I, I'll continue to do that. Keeps you on your toes, I'm sure. <laughs> so, you know, Champagne Dame grew and grew and grew. And look, it's interesting because when I hit my 10-year anniversary, I thought, 
um, oh my goodness, you know, I put in so much love and effort and it comes naturally. I, don't, I didn't think of it as a business for a long period of time because it's my love job. But I thought, you know what? I can't actually exit this business. I can't sell this business. And that's when I started to work on Emperor, which is obviously um, a much more scalable business. And Emperor is my retail business. So Emperor is now the largest online retailer of champagne in Australia. We we ship champagne to every corner of this fine country and we have over 160 champagnes and growing. So we're we're a specialist retailer um, in champagne, kind of like the net a porter of champagne. You know, luxury packaging is standard. Next day delivery. Yeah, Beautiful we you know we're, we're very much <laughs> yeah. the, the bee's knees of champagne. We give it all the love and attention that it deserves um, and we respect our clients and their choice in champagne, which is an expensive one, and we, we really appreciate that and we, we re- reward them for that. Um, so then I launched Emperor last year. I raised a, a million dollars in capital and I created a beautiful new website and brand, something that would be scalable, something that would allow me to sell champagne while I was asleep. And I literally woke up this morning and there were multiple orders that come through in the middle of the night. Um, and it's also a business that's saleable. It gives me an exit strategy, you know, something that I can retire on. And I now run both businesses side by side. And what's really interesting is that I thought Champagne Dame would sort of hit 10 years and start to peter out, but Dame's never been stronger. You know, our sales for our tours are phenomenal. Our masterclasses are full. We're selling out every show and both businesses are feeding one another. So I'm <laughs> very busy. Um, but, you know, it's this symbiosis that's just uh, phenomenal. You know, it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. So have you uh, engaged any sort of special mentors or inspirational people on this journey with you? They could be family and friends. They could be famous people. It doesn't really matter. And if so, what have they taught you about this journey of life and success? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think mentors are incredibly important for everyone. I think you need a mentor in your life that just is someone who inspires you to be courageous and someone who inspires you to be strong. And then you need mentors for specific parts of your journey in life that can help you with the more technical stuff, whether it's raising capital, growing a business, handling a staff issue. You know, you need people who've got experience with specialities. Um, I probably haven't had, truthfully, the person in my life who has been that um, total inspiration in terms of being brave and being courageous. I've had to find that within myself. Um, I really have had to be very... um, strong and courageous of my own accord, um, although I've watched many other successful people. But I must admit, in the last couple of years, I have really reached out to a few people in my network, and some of them have been clients, and some of them have been people that I knew of through other friends and have knocked on their door and said, you know, excuse me, I'm at a particular phase of my life, which is new for me. Can I sit down and have a coffee or a glass of champagne with you and ask you for your advice? And that's been really valuable of late. It's been very valuable because I handled my own capital raise, which is quite a technical thing to do. Um, you know, a woman raising capital, a woman starting a tech business solo is, is, is not always an easy thing. But, you know, I've knocked on a couple of doors and I've been amazingly surprised at how willing people are to give you time and really honest feedback and information, you know, without anything expected in, in exchange. And I, and I must really emphasize this that if anyone's starting a new business or if anyone's in a particular journey of their life where they're experiencing something new or challenging, go out and find someone who's done it before you and sit down, buy them a glass of champagne, buy them a coffee and really pick their brain. 
Absolutely. No, I think asking is key. And people think, oh, well, they're going to say no. But I, I must admit, no one's really ever said no. They might have said, I'm a bit busy at this point and maybe referred me to someone they think will be better, but they've still helped. Yes. And I think we asking for help is not in our culture, but it should be when it comes to business. Yeah. And it, the, the shoe's very much on the other foot at the moment because I've created a very um, successful business within Champagne. And there are other Champagne educators around the world in Sweden, in Switzerland, in Chicago, in Italy, in um, Czechoslovakia, who are now coming to me for advice. How did you structure your masterclass? How did you get the business off the ground? How did you, you know, asking me questions about what my model was so that then they can replicate that. And I think that's that's great. You know, I'm certainly happy to share that advice because I've trodden the boards for, for over a decade and, you know, I think that it's my turn to give back. Absolutely. So what would be your favourite quote or idea that sums up the politics of champagne? <laughs> um, there are quite a few good good quotes uh, pertaining to champagne, but I think perhaps the most relevant is, in victory we deserve it and in defeat we need it. <laughs> so <laughs> good. Referring to champagne, you know, um, it's about celebration, you know, and it's about celebration of, of the wins in life, be them small, be them big. Um, you know, something that I've certainly learnt in life is that, there's no smooth road, there's no smooth journey. And if you think for a minute as you look out um, at the people around you that some people have been more successful or less successful, there are bumps in the road. Sometimes we, we're victorious and sometimes we fail, um, you know, and I think that you've got, to, you've got to pull out and get a little bit bird's eye on your life and think that when you're in the bumpy part of the road, which is inevitable for all of us, no one has a perfect journey, you've got to remember to pull out and that, and know that there's success around the corner or know that there's something good around the corner. I think something that I notice um, in people around me is that they get too bogged down when the low's low. You've got to appreciate the highs and also know that the lows are only going to be temporary and don't let that stop you in your path. I see a lot of young entrepreneurs and business people that have hit a bumpy patch and decide to pull out. The only time you truly fail is when you give up. So we've just got to keep going. We've got to keep pushing through the tough bits to get to the glory and um, you may as well have a champagne while you're doing it. Absolutely. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program today. If you want to connect further with Kyla, there will be some details on our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.